Hey guys, so I know I've been promising you a really awesome bonus content on the book of Revelation, and I finally got it put together. I'm so excited for you guys to hear this. So what happened is when I was growing up, every Sunday we would gather as a family around the table, and it was just kind of like open floor. If you have any questions about the gospel, you can ask away. And both of my parents are really knowledgeable about the gospel. They spent a lot of years of their life dedicated to learning and studying and knowing more about the gospel. And so we had lots of really interesting gospel discussions growing up. And some of those gospel discussions centered around the book of Revelation. So I knew when we started studying the book of Revelation, especially the end time stuff, I was like, I don't really want to touch that. I know that there are people out there that know more about it than me. So I wanted to go to my parents. And so I actually got to go talk to my parents about this. So what you are going to hear now, I like to call it the Revelation Round Table because the table in my parents' kitchen is round. And so we went last Sunday night and we sat down there at the round table. And you're going to hear me and my parents kind of talking like we used to do over one of our Sunday dinners while I was growing up. So, I mean, you're going to hear in the background like Chris. Christmas music's playing. There's a timer at one point that goes off on the oven because the chocolate pie gets done, which by the way, that chocolate pie was the bomb. Like y'all missed out. That fudge pie was amazing. So that timer going off, totally worth it. And you're going to hear my mom beeping stuff on the oven because she's still fixing dinner like while we're talking and things like that. But you're also going to hear my mom and dad discussing the book of Revelation. And I think you'll get to see each one of their viewpoints on the book of Revelation, whereas my dad's very detail-oriented. My mom is very big idea. It's all about the victory of Christ over Satan, and um, it's just really cool. I really liked sitting down and talking to them about it. Um, I do want to make a note that at any point in The Savior Said, any podcast episode, you need to know that this does not supplant your own personal revelation. It does not supplant your own personal study of the Come Follow Me curriculum. You need to be doing your own personal study of the Come Follow Me curriculum and then using the Savior Said podcast as like a supplemental material. Um, there was a comment that was made recently and it made me think, oh my gosh, please tell me no one is using this as like their Come Follow Me curriculum because I received personal revelation for me. You're going to hear some stuff that my parents say that was like revelation to them, but that doesn't mean that it's revelation to you. Do you know what I mean? Like some of this stuff can help kind of broaden your understanding and maybe open some horizons. And they're going to point to different scriptures and stuff that kind of help them along too. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the thing that you need to be thinking about if that makes sense. Um, Also, there's so much conjecture that surrounds the book of Revelation. And you'll hear my dad say this too. It's worth what you pay for it. So (laughs) you're getting this episode for free. So, you know, his advice is worth what you're getting paid for or what you're paying for. So you know, take that, take everything they say with a grain of salt. They do identify their sources when they can. And then other times when they're like just extrapolating or just, it's kind of like an educated guess, they'll tell you that too. So, um, all right. So that's the intro to this particular piece of roundtable revelation with mom and dad. Here we go. All right, so today we are here with mom and dad. I'm just going to call you guys mom and dad, okay? Um, To talk about the book of Revelation, Revelation, not Revelations, and some of the signs of the second coming that are mentioned in the book of Revelation, and also a few of the other signs, too, that I just wondered about. So 
Mom and Dad, the reason I came to them is they have done firesides, they have done workshops, they've pretty much done every meeting you can possibly think of on this subject, except for maybe sacrament meeting talks, but um, they've got all kinds of really great knowledge and background knowledge on the book of Revelation. So that's why we're here today. So Dad, do you want to start off with anything in particular, signs, some of your favorite signs from the book of Revelation? Um, I don't know that I want to talk about anything in particular like that. I, I just think we need to make mention of the fact that you know, the book of Revelation is intended to be just that. It's supposed to be revelatory to teach us and explain things to us of that which is to come. At the time the book was written, at least according to the Book of Mormon, it was very plain and easy to understand. But going through the hands of translators and things, it has become rather obtuse and difficult to understand in many instances nowadays. So much of what's in the book of Revelation is to be understood either symbolically and or by Revelation itself. And so it's people should not be upset or discouraged if on the first reading of any part of the book of Revelation they go, I don't know what that means, I can't understand it, therefore I quit. It's one of those things, not unlike the book of Isaiah, where you need to read it and read it and reread it and go over it again and again and again. If you don't understand certain passages, that's not a big deal. You just keep going. Over time, personal revelation, as, long, as well as teachings of the brethren and things you read, reveal more and more of the meaning of the book of Revelation. I have learned a great deal over the last 40 plus years that I've been a member of the church about the book of Revelations, but there's still a lot of things in here I just look at and I go, I don't know what that means. Okay, so if we hit one of those, you can let us know you don't know what that means. All right, Mom, do you have any thoughts on the book of Revelation? The Revelation of John is, as, as Dad said, a revelation. It's, it's apocryphal, and, and it's it was covered to protect the material for our day. It's kind of like the Book of Mormon, which was preserved for our day. It was that, that, that covering was placed over it because John was in, in Patmos, basically, and had been put there in, in exile and in a really hostile environment. And so he wrote it in a way that would hide it from his jailers. And that would then, and only be meaningful to those who had a complete understanding of the gospel of Christ. And so you have to read it in that context as well. If you get really wrapped up in what does this mean? What does that mean? You sometimes can lose the, the whole meaning which John was trying to share. The really the revelation of John was that the good guys win. And it was the, to me it, it's, it has a very victorious message, and Satan is defeated and bound, and it's all going to be okay in the end. You know, that's, I, I think in that context, then you can read everything else. Yeah, I'm, I quoted in the last episode, I was like, my mom and I always say it's all going to be okay in the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end. You, you know, <laughs> so John's saying it's all going to be okay in the end. Okay, so one of the first signs that it's mentioned in Revelation that I wanted to ask you guys about is the moon turning to blood. Now, obviously, that's not a literal sign. Do we know what that means? Atmospheric conditions. We've seen it happen with volcanoes. And lunar eclipses. You know, there, there are a lot of ways that could come to pass. Um, the coloration of the moon depends a great deal upon what's happening with the atmospheric elements. If there's volcanic dust, if there's smoke and stuff from war and contentions and fires and that kind of stuff, the moon can take on various different colors. And particularly 
as your mother mentioned, during volcanic activity or when there's a lot of smoke in the atmosphere, as there will be towards the end from the wars, uh, the moon very well could take on a very red hue. So it's actually part of like a lot of the other signs of the second yes. coming as well, yes. right? So like yes. the wars and the rumors of wars. It's not, it is not the sort of thing where one day or one evening you'll go out and look at the sky and the moon will be bright red. It's not going to be like that. The fact that it's happened before with other atmospheric conditions means that, that the fact that he would mention it is that this is going to be really different. Okay. It's, it's going to be, maybe it will be, the moon will be red over a long period yes. of time. Yes. It will be redder than red or you know, whatever. So it's going to be a distinct different type of type of moon that we're, that we're looking at. Okay, so another question I had from Revelation 7 was the 144,000. So okay. what is that? Because I know there are some denominations that believe that that's all who's going to be saved mm -hmm. is the 144,000. <clears throat> the elect. The that's elect, what, that's right? What yeah. The elect. So what is our interpretation of that? Fortunately, we have a very specific and direct answer to that. If you turn to D&C, section 77, and I want to say about verse 11. Yeah, verse, yeah, section 77, verse 11 mm -hmm. says, this is the question. What are we to understand by sealing the 144,000 out of all the tribes of Israel, 12,000 out of every tribe? And Joseph Smith wrote, We are to understand that those who are sealed are high priests, ordained under the holy order of God, so the Melchizedek priesthood, to administer the everlasting gospel. For they are they who are ordained out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people by the angels to whom is given power over the nations of the earth, to bring as many as will come to the church of the firstborn. My take on that is I think these are these will be Melchizedek priesthood leaders, maybe certainly apostles and prophets, possibly stake presidents who have or who now have keys that will be called forth and become the administrators as we go into the millennium. Okay, so do you think that's like a round number? Are they rounding up as an estimate? It's not an exact number though, right? Who knows? Who knows? We okay. don't know. So many of the numbers that are used in the scriptures are symbolic, not exact. They yeah. have um, the the Jews at that time were really into numerology and the significance of numbers, and so you can't really take them real literally. Yeah, and remind me, I cannot remember. Is this the part where they're talking about the sealing on the forehead? It, like the, these will be sealed on their forehead. Okay, would that be the anointing of the elders, or? There are so many, temp there's there's a lot of temple symbolism uh -huh. in the Revelation of John. And yeah. It's really, really interesting. I, I did one study of it one time where I just went through and identified what I thought were relevant to the temple. And mm -hmm. so certainly the anointing, as as um, anointing in ancient days, mm -hmm. that could be you know the, the way that we're anointed. But it may be something else. Maybe the anointing of the priesthood power. That's kind of what I was thinking, the anointing of the priesthood yeah. power. Now, of interest here, you're in chapter 7, mm -hmm. Revelation. Yeah. It begins there in verse 4 and says, I heard the number of them which were sealed, and they were sealed a hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And then from verse 5 through uh, verse 8, it numbers the tribes. Mm -hmm. There's a glaring omission in those twelve. Yeah. The tribe of Dan is not mentioned at all. Okay. In fact, if you look in there, in verse 6, it mentions the tribe of Manassas. 
which is one of the sons of Joseph. And then later on, oh, let's see, it mentions Joseph again, the tribe of Joseph in verse 8. So they're like two representatives from the line of Joseph, none from the line of Dan. What does that mean? Why is it? Well, we don't know, but I'll tell you what, what Jewish and early Christian tradition holds is that the Antichrist will come out of the tribe of Dan, and that's why huh. it's not mentioned. Interesting. Now I, have, now, I have not heard any of the brethren speak okay. about that. I've never read that in any writings of Joseph Smith or Brigham Young or any of the brethren, but that is early Christian and Jewish tradition that the tribe of Dan is not mentioned because out of the tribe of Dan will come the Antichrist. Okay, so let's talk about the Antichrist. Is it it's going to be one specific person or is it an ideology? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there, there, according to the book of Revelation and things that have been written, it appears that at some point here in the latter days, a organization, an institution will arise in which there will be one grand figurehead that will be the Antichrist spoken of in chapters 11, 12, and 13 here in Revelation. We don't know a whole lot about it. And with the exception of the second coming itself, I don't know that there's been more written and more speculation about anything other than, than uh, you know, when the Savior is going to come than about the Antichrist. We just don't know a whole lot. And quite frankly, Latter-day Prophets haven't spoken a great deal about it. You know, Nephi, um, in seeing our day, talked about the Church of the Devil and the Church of Christ. Mm -hmm. and, um, who, and, and his, the scriptures about those two churches are very general, but it, it really, the line is between does it lead you to worship the Savior and covenant with Him, or does it dissuade you from doing that? Yeah. So there are actually a whole lot of things that could fall in the Church of Christ, and similarly a whole lot of things that could fall in the Church of the Devil. And whoever is going to be the media darling maybe at the time, or a political leader, or um, a social movement leader of that Church of the Devil, would probably be the one that would be identified as the Antichrist, as opposed to an Antichrist, mm -hmm. which you see pop up in the Book of Mormon. and and also in the, the Bible. Yeah. Now what's interesting, from about chapter 13 on in Revelations, you have the mention of this unholy trinity. They refer to the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon. Mm -hmm. The beast, he's going to be the public face, the, the PR guy, the president, whoever this is, whatever you want to call it, the guy that's supposedly leading the church of the devil. He will be very charismatic, very well-known, and he will uh, seemingly at first be a good guy, mm -hmm. and then later on be revealed to not be so good. Are we sure it's a man? Are we sure we it's a We don't male? know, no. Okay. No, you know, that's just an assumption. Mm -hmm. Second behind him is the one they call the false prophet, and he is the one that will exercise supernatural power through the auspices of Lucifer and his minions. In fact, the first one, the beast, the actual Antichrist, he will receive what appears to be a mortal wound mm -hmm. and will be healed miraculously by the power of this other guy called the false prophet. He is the one that will have supernatural power given to him by Satan. And then, of course, the third member is the adversary himself, the dragon. Mm -hmm. So you have the beast, 
the false prophet, and the dragon. And those three comprise kind of an unholy trinity. And the interesting... The there's inter there's interesting, a symbolism there. The interesting symmetry, mm -hmm. if you will, if you look at the Godhead, there's two embodied beings and one spirit. You look at this other unholy trinity, there'll be two embodied spirits, mortals, and Lucifer, who has no body. Yeah. So and it's kind of an unholy trinity fighting in opposition against the true Godhead. And the counterfeit continues because they seem to be given the same powers of the Godhead, mm -hmm. or priesthood power. They mm -hmm. seem to be given priesthood power, whether you know the, the healing, the leading, the, the administering. Um, it, it's very, the, again, the book of Revelation is full of Satan's counterfeits. Mm -hmm. And it speaks of him here, this is the false prophet, he exercises all the power, I mean, Revelations 13, 12. He exercises all the powers of the first beast before him and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound he healed. And he doeth great wonders so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he has power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast. Mm. So, I mean, we got a lot of, a lot of really weird stuff going on here. But again, it's representative, it's a counterfeit of, of, of the Savior, yeah. the, uh, the, re mm -hmm. the resurrection. It also reminds me of the prophets of Baal calling and, fire yeah, down with and, Elijah. And the, the, the priests uh, of the Pharaoh when Moses mm -hmm. was yeah. confronting them. Mm -hmm. And it goes on to speak of it and says, He'll cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, that no man might buy or sell, save he had, uh, had that mark of the beast, or that the name of the beast, or the number of his name. And so, you know, those three are going to be on stage in some way. Now, whether they'll be a corporation, a, a political power, or, you know, the head of some, albeit church, we just don't know. But they will appear at some point in history and be doing the things that are described here in the book of Revelations, fighting against the very eternal Son and the Father mm -hmm. and the, all of the Father's works. This is kind of the last cataclysmic battle where Lucifer and his forces are marshaled against God and his forces. The scariest thing to me is, again, that those counterfeits are so close that it could potentially deceive the very elect. Mm -hmm. And it will only be by following the prophet. Yeah, following the brethren and, is going to become And the influence of the Holy important. Ghost that, that we will be able to discern. Yeah, and I think that's important too to point out that when we are sending all this like scary looking stuff, you know, stay close to the Savior, stay close to the true gospel, and you're going to be okay. Because mm -hmm. it's great as well as terrible. And, yeah. you know, the terrible gets so overwhelming, we forget about the great part. Because the, the terrible is so like, ooh, you yeah. know, and it's sensational. Um, one of the things that I mentioned there was the number of the beast, the 666, to why that number represents Lucifer. Just my take on things, and, you know, I'm certainly no prophet or, or revelator, but, you know, that's another item from the book of Revelation here that, has been speculated upon in so many ways. I remember when I was growing up, almost every every time you turned around, somebody had figured out, well, it's 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 Nikita Khrushchev. 
No, it's it's Ronald Reagan. No, it's this person. That it's Pope John. It's you know they would have some scheme that they had figured out that it was this person or that person or this person or that person. And so you know that that kind of speculation's been going on for years and years and years and years and years. And I think the important thing to to know and remember here is that when that person appears, I have full confidence that the brethren will let us know, uh, don't follow that. Stay here. Stay on the covenant path. Okay. Gotcha. Um, all right. Let's see. Let's talk about the temple rebuild at the, at the Dome of the Rock, you know, and Christ okay. is supposed to appear on the throne. Can we talk a little bit about that and the two witnesses and everything that's supposed to happen before then? Well, it all kind of runs together, so it's it's hard to, you know, just start in the middle and, and present a timeline. But it is prophesied that the Jews will rebuild the Temple of Solomon. Right now, there's a problem. They want to rebuild it on the, on the foundation that was the Temple of Solomon. There's a problem there right now in that the Dome of the Rock Mosque sits on the foundation of the Temple of Solomon there in Jerusalem. The Dome of the Rock Mosque is the third most holy site in all of Islam. And so you can imagine the kind of kerfluffle that will ensue if something disturbs that mosque. You know, we know from things that we, we've read in the literature that uh, Israel has already developed the plans, the architectural drawings for the temple. They have the temple clothing, the ceremonial clothing, already made up and sewn. They've identified literal descendants of the tribe of Levi, who are ready to officiate as priests to perform the ancient laws or ancient ordinances of the law of Moses. Everything is ready to go, except for the fact that there is a little real estate problem there. The, the Dome of the Rock Mosque sits where the Temple of Solomon is to be rebuilt. Somehow that mosque is going to be removed. We don't know how. You can speculate all day long, but at some point or another, that mosque will be removed, and the nation of Israel will begin to rebuild the Temple of Solomon so that once that is built, they can again offer, make offerings unto the Lord, and that will fulfill the prophecy in section 13 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where it said that priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, will never again be taken from the earth until the sons of Levi do offer again an offering in righteousness unto the Lord. Now, I've heard some people say, well, we think the temple's going to be the BYU center in Jerusalem. And indeed, I've read places where that building was so constructed that it could be turned into one of our Latter-day Saint temples. But that differs from an ancient Jewish temple rebuilt where the law of Moses can once, the ordinances of the law of Moses can once again be performed. I really don't think the brethren would allow the laws of Moses to be performed in any of our temples. <laughs> yeah. So that temple has to be rebuilt. Now, again, just my personal opinion, I, and I could be as wrong as wrong can be. My opinion's worth what you pay for. But I think that at some point, whatever force takes out the Dome of the Rock Mosque will give the world of Islam the excuse to start the process of attacking Israel in what will become the Battle of Armageddon. Mm -hmm. Just my opinion. I think I can't think of anything else right now in our in our world that would so infuriate the Islamic world as for that mosque to somehow be moved out of the way and 
for the uh, nation of Israel to start building a temple on top of it. Mm -hmm. I think that would lead to war very quickly. And you think that's what's going to like divide us all into Armageddon? I think the battles that will ensue from that kind of event will begin the process that leads to multiple battles and conflicts that will culminate in Armageddon. Okay. Whereas it says both here in the book of Revelation and in Zechariah and Daniel that the Lord will gather all nations to Armageddon. Mm -hmm. Armageddon is the Hebrew for Megiddo, the valley of Megiddo, which lies about 70 miles 60 to 70 miles north of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. It's where many ancient battles have taken place, and it's where either a major battle or the culmination of battles or several different battles will occur here in the latter days that will envelop all of Israel. Okay, so that probably is not the only place that battles are going to take place. Battles uh, may yeah, take place yeah. elsewhere as well. I think, you know, you just look around and you see the possibilities that arise, could arise with Islamic terrorism, mm -hmm with civil wars, which are already ongoing, major power conflicts between the United States and China, United States and Russia. I mean, there's, I think the world will be in a general state of war mm -hmm. eventually all over the place. But the scripture says that's significant to me, all the world will be turned against the nation of Israel. Mm -hmm. And you know that that would imply even the United States and mm -hmm. and countries that have been Europe in countries in Europe that have been very friendly to Israel. Mm -hmm. um, think about what kind of an event it would take to coalesce that kind of a force to unitedly turn against an ally. Yeah, I mean it would have to be major. It would have to be bad, bad. Well, you know you you can say that, and you may not be wrong, but. There are political forces in our own country that have, of recent vintage, not been friendly to the nation That's of Israel. That's true. Mm -hmm. and, and it also could mean that, um, in particular with the United States, and I've seen heard this said before, that we will not be able to come to the aid of Israel because our own situation in terms of debt mm -hmm. will, um, you know, if, if, if somebody called our debt, mm -hmm. and we would be not able to, to assist, that the defense wouldn't be there. So we've talked a lot about the United States. We've talked about Israel. We've talked about the Islamic nations. Um, what about China? Does China figure in anywhere in this? Just on a global yeah. scale, just because they're so large? The references, there, there are references of, of um, forces coming from the North countries. Mm -hmm. And that, has, that can be interpreted as Russia as well as China. Okay. Yeah. As far as a specific I mean, reference. hordes and hordes and hordes of people. Mm -hmm. As a specific reference that you could point at and say, you know, that means China. No. Nothing's been identified that I know about. Mm -hmm. The only thing we have is it's hordes and hordes and hordes of people coming from North countries. So, so that could be China, who has hordes and hordes of people, and it could be Russia, because mm -hmm. they're all they're also, yeah. you know, in that area. I just wonder about those two, because those are the two that yeah. we always have our eyes on right now. Well, so. and, and as usual, the it's not always what you think it's going to be. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, we've, we've seen that happen time and time again, that um, no one thought that the, the pro, no, in, in the, the Old Testament, the New Testament prophecies about the Book of Mormon, very few people ever opened up and said, oh, well, of course, yes, that was a Book of Mormon. Mm -hmm. You know, they still don't see that. Yeah. So there's no telling what John saw in his revelation and what we're actually going to see. We're interpreting it given the framework and perspective we have now. Yeah. You have to remember that as John wrote this, and told my Sunday school classes before, John was seeing things that were completely 
outside the scope of anything he had experienced mm -hmm. or knew about. Um, and so he's, he's trying to, as your mom said, he's trying to cover some things, but other things he's struggling to you know, present them in a manner that could be understood given his reference frame. Yeah. You know, how, how would you describe a B-52 bomber mm -hmm. if you'd never even seen an airplane before? You know, you're talking about a beast with wings that fly and roaring and all that kind of stuff. Calling down the power of heaven. Yeah. <laughs> the mean, fire literally. of heaven. Yeah. That would make sense. How would, how, if you were if you were lived in John's time, how would you and saw and vision? How would you describe a nuclear detonation? Mm -hmm. I mean, John was seeing things here that uh, and using the best language he could come up with that were difficult for him to describe because they were just totally outside his realm of experience. Yeah. What um, do the two prophets or the two apostles that what do they have to do? With well, that's probably that's probably one of the most interesting aspects of the book of Revelation, particularly for Latter-day Saints. This is all contained in chapter 11. Chapter 11 talks about the fact that there will be a point where two witnesses, that's the words that John uses, two Latter-day prophets will appear and minister for uh, three and a half years in the city of Jerusalem. We know it's the city of Jerusalem because uh, verse 8 talks about it Spiritually, it's called Sodom and Egypt, which, where also our Lord was crucified. Mm -hmm. So we know it's Jerusalem. These two ministers, these two prophets who Elder Bruce R. McConkie identified, he said they would be Latter-day Apostles. Mm -hmm. They would be called and sent on a mission to Jerusalem where they will minister for, for, like I said, for three and a half years. And they will prophesy for uh, 1,203 score days, that's about three and a half years. They'll have power uh, given them to, well, I'll just read it. It said, uh, verse 5, If any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These, that is the two apostles, have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Now, I believe this will be happening as the battles of Armageddon are closing in on Jerusalem. I believe that for three and a half years, these two apostles will pretty much hold off, hold them at bay, mm -hmm. keep them from, from fulfilling their mission, which is to destroy Jerusalem. Verse 7 says, And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast... Ah, there he is again. Mm -hmm. The beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. Mm -hmm. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of that great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So these two Latter-day Apostles will be killed. Their bodies will lie there in the streets of Jerusalem. And it says, And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half the spirit of life from God entereth unto them and they stood upon their feet in great fear fell upon them which saw them. 
And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither, and they ascend up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And then the same hour there's a great earthquake, and bad things happen. Mm -hmm. Bad things go on from there. Yeah. So what we know is these two will be apparently Latter-day prophets, and we have no reason to think there'll be anyone other than apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, armed with the full power of the Melchizedek priesthood, who will be sent there to Jerusalem to hold off the battle that's beginning to besiege and encompass Jerusalem mm -hmm. there in, in, the, in the final days. That's scary. Like, I would... <laughs> I would be so scared to be like, hey, you're getting this call to go to Jerusalem. Like, that's scary well, stuff. you know, we've talked uh, parenthetically about back in the 1980s when Elder Oaks and, uh, Elder Nelson, President Nelson and Elder Oaks were both called simultaneously into the Quorum of the Twelve without seemingly having risen through the ranks mm -hmm. of the church. You know, one was a famous heart surgeon, one was a justice of the Utah State Supreme Court. They just kind of, boop, were called to be apostles. And everybody went, it's them. It's them. We know it's them. They're the ones. They're the ones that are going to be sent to Jerusalem. Well, since that time, we've had a number of other pairs come mm -hmm. in like that. Uh, we don't know who it will be. Mm -hmm. you know. But if one day we're listening to General Conference and they announce that two of the brethren have been sent to Jerusalem, for an extended period, then you know you may want to watch that. Yeah, duck and cover. <laughs> you may want to watch that. Oh man. Okay, so one of the symbolisms that kind of got me was in Revelation 16. It talks about the beast with seven heads and ten horns. Do you know anything about that? Elder McConkey, you know, and that, that kind of reference is made in a number of places yeah. in, in Revelation. You know, number the various numbers of heads and horns and yeah. crowns. Yeah, that's why I was like, does that have significant power? Okay. About power, Elder McConkie says those represent degenerate earthly kingdoms. Okay. Without a whole lot of specificity. Mm -hmm. It just means various kingdoms and powers that will arise. As your mother said, you know, the notion of a crown that denotes, you know, power and authority. As do horns and wings. Mm -hmm. They're they're used repeatedly throughout the scriptures to recognize the ability to the, the movement, which which denotes again the, the ability to make things move. Yeah. So they're symbols of power because you have similarly the beast with many heads and many eyes, uh -huh. the ability to see, worshiping at the throne of God. Yeah. In earlier chapters, yeah. so it's not necessarily a bad thing. They're simply symbolic of very powerful entities. Okay. Okay. Got it. Um, okay, so let's talk about the rapture. It's not mentioned in Revelation, but it's mentioned, we talked about it a little bit earlier. It was in Thessalonians, I think, that they talked a little bit about the rapture, what the Christian denomination world calls the rapture. And also in the Doctrine and Covenants. Oh, we talked about the Doctrine and Covenants too. Okay. Actually, the whole concept of the rapture, as spoken of in popular Christianity, is in a misinterpretation of remarks from the Savior. You know, we have this whole left behind, that, yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, they made movies and wrote books and all that kind of good stuff. And, uh, you know, very entertaining. But it's it's misinterpretation of remarks the Savior made in Matthew 24. If you go to Matthew 24, the whole, the whole chapter of Matthew 24 is about signs of the times, by the way. If you want a good place to start studying signs of the second coming, Matthew 24 is a great place to 
But read the Joseph Smith translation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Matthew 24, beginning about verse 36, he says, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So when someone tells you that the second coming is going to be this day or that day, mm-hmm. tells it right here, nobody knows. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the day, for in the day that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So there are going to be a lot of drinking and partying and paying no attention to the signs of the time until the Son of Man comes. Now keep that in mind. Son of Man comes. Then shall two be in the field. One shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill. The one shall be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. And from that, a lot of this rapture and mythology has ensued. What that is referring to is at the time of the second coming, those who are destined for celestial glory Mm -hmm. shall be caught up and meet the Savior and descend with him. Mm -hmm. And those verses will be fulfilled. But it is not, it is not what many people write in their novels and fiction and stuff that people are, the good are going to be taken up and left, the rest of us great unwashed are going to be left here to <laughs> suffer the wrath of God. That's not what that means. Okay. Um, that actually reminds me of another question I have. So is Christ, when he comes back to earth, is it just going to be one time that he comes back to earth or are there going to be multiple There, There will be multiple times. Mm-hmm. You know, one, we all, well, there are at least two we already know about. The one in the first vision, he returned in there in 1820. The other was in the Kirtland Temple in 1836. Uh, the reason to suspect he's returned to several of his temples in the meantime. You know, I, 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 if, if I was told tomorrow that he has met with various prophets here in the last dispensation in the temple, Holy of Holies, I would believe it. I would, I would not find that far-fetched at all. We know he's going to return to Adam on Diamond, you know, Spring Hill, Davis County, Missouri to hold that great uh, priesthood conference where Adam and others who have held sacred priesthood keys will be present to turn them back over to the Savior. That will happen before the great second coming. Mm -hmm. We know he's going to make an appearance in Jerusalem after those two witnesses are killed and the battles of those who are wicked are closing in and about ready to conquer Jerusalem. He will return to the east and stand upon the Mount of Olives This is all in Zechariah. Part of the mountain will fall to the north, part will fall to the south. There'll be a valley there through which the remaining survivors in Jerusalem will flee and they'll meet him there. And that's when he'll show them the wounds in his hands and in his feet. And uh, that's when they will recognize who he is and then he will begin to fight the battles for them. Mm -hmm. And it'll be a very, very bad career move to be on the other side. Mm -hmm. So all, all of these various appearances are going to happen before the great second coming when the whole world mm-hmm. sees and recognizes who he is simultaneously. Yeah. So there's going to be there going to be a number of appearances, some of which have already happened, some could happen at any point in time before the, the big one. 
So we're talking about the priesthood conference there in Adamon Dion in Spring Spring Hill in Jefferson. Spring County. Hill, Davies County, Missouri. <clears throat> okay. So who all is going to be invited to that conference? We don't know. We don't know. We know that Adam and many of the ancient prophets will be there as mm -hmm. resurrected beings. Uh, because it is mentioned that priesthood keys will be transferred back to the Savior, I tend to think that any of the brethren who have held apostolic keys mm -hmm. here in this last dispensation will be there, including living apostles and prophets. Beyond that, I've heard people say, well, stake presidents will be there too. Maybe, but that would be a whole lot. Mm -hmm. That would be a lot of brethren. Because then you potentially get back to 144,000. Yeah. That's what I was wondering. I'm like, is this going to be a big thing or is this going to be like a small like gathering of, you know, like you said, the you know, apostolic the, keys? Maybe the brethren today know, but mm -hmm. I don't know that I've read anywhere where it will be. My, my thought is I tend to think it's going to be a smaller gathering. Mm -hmm. I think, again, my opinion's worth what you paid for. Mm -hmm. I think it will be brethren who have held apostolic keys. Okay. You know, have the full set of keys. That makes sense then, because I was like, you know, with the new emphasis in the church of like, you know, moving to women in the priesthood and women holding keys in their callings and things like that, I was like, is that going to include women now? But no, I like what you're saying there with the apostolic keys. I think keys. it will be those who, who've who held all the keys, mm -hmm. you know, who've held apostolic keys and they will return them to the Savior and give an account. Okay. I like that. All right, is there anything that I am missing or I'm skipping over in Revelations that y'all can think of? Any other big signs that people talk about a lot? Gosh, there's all kind of things you know, <laughs> talked about. But yeah. when, I, when I talk to people about the second coming, there are, you know, what I consider three major signs that you should look for. If, you know, there's, I think Bruce R. McConkie identified like 45 to mm -hmm. 50 mm -hmm. different signs some have been fulfilled, some have yet to be fulfilled. But the three I tell people to watch for is the Savior's prophecy that the gospel will be preached to all the world. That has to happen. He made that clear in, in uh, his mortal ministry here and in the revelations to Joseph Smith. The one, the one thing that has to happen before he can return in glory is the gospel has to be preached to the entire world. Now, people quibble about, well, what does that mean? If we send you know, copies of the Book of Mormon to China, does that count? I don't know. Mm -hmm. When I look at the world right now, there's only three places that I can identify where the gospel really in, in full measure has not yet happened. One is China. That's the big one. Uh, North Korea and parts of the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Most everywhere else in the world, it's been preached and is present. And it's making inroads in the Middle East. You know, we have stake uh, in the United Arab Emirates. We've been welcomed into Qatar. Uh, things are happening there. China, as we've talked about many times, there are so, so many tens, if not hundreds of thousands of Chinese who have come to the United States and elsewhere, learned the gospel, even been baptized and have gone back home. The, the field is white, all ready to harvest, to use the language from section four of the Doctrine and Covenants. All that has to happen is for the Chinese government to get, get its mind right to allow our missionaries to come in and establish the church. Well, you look at the political situation, you go, well, that, golly, that, who knows when that's going to happen, but 
I remember in the middle 1980s, we wondered if the gospel would ever be preached behind the Iron Curtain mm -hmm. in the Soviet Union. And then in 1989, it took about six months and the Iron Curtain was gone and we were sending missionaries. And while I was bishop, I was sending young men to the former Soviet Union. So this can happen very, very quickly. You know, when the Lord decides it's time, he'll make the things happen and all of a sudden we'll be sending tens of thousands of full-time missionaries into the what is now China, to establish the church and get it get it up. But all that has to happen. You know, if, if that gospel is not preached to the entire world, it's not time yet. Well, and then, so then the conversation your, your, your father and I have had back and forth and forth and back, and we don't have anything else to talk about, is um, what does the gospel being preached mean? Mm -hmm. Is it the restored gospel of Jesus Christ with all the covenants and ordinances that are associated with that, or is it a knowledge of Christ? In other words, any Christian churches and any access, mm -hmm. which then would possibly make it easier, particularly with the internet. Yeah. You, you, it is, internet access is available in, well, they're not available in North Korea, not available in parts of the Middle East, not available in China yet, but with internet access will come access to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Because we really, when we, even in the millennium, there will be those who are not members of the church, but they're just the good people of the earth. Yeah, will still be alive then. So you know, is the is the bar lower maybe than we think it is in mm -hmm. terms of what a knowledge of Christ would would uh, require? Okay, interesting. So that's the first thing of the three. Yeah, the second thing that has to happen, as we talked about, is the two witnesses mm -hmm. in Jerusalem. And that is as the battles, or what will become the battles of Armageddon, are cranking up. And then the third one is the rebuilding of the Temple of Solomon there in Jerusalem. Those, I think, are the three big ones. Mm -hmm. You know, it, the, as near as I can tell from my reading of Matthew 24 and the Doctrine and Covenants and uh, the writings of the prophets, the Savior's great and grand second coming can't happen until those three are fulfilled. And there's a whole host of others that have to happen and they'll fall into place. But those are the three big ones that I think, you know, we will be able to identify. Here's a CNN exclusive, yeah. two people <laughs> killed in, in Jerusalem, that kind of thing. And so until those, until those three things happen, I don't think the time is, is at hand for his second coming. Now, those things could happen over a long period of time or they could happen very quickly. You know, we just don't know. Again, as it says there in Matthew 24, of that day and of that hour, no man knoweth. Yeah. Do we have any sense of whether it's going to happen sooner or later, or we just don't know? I would say the, the correct answer to that question is we don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the only thing that can be said is that today we are one day closer than we were yesterday, and tomorrow we'll be one day closer than we are today. Uh, I look and I see the brethren adapting the church to be ready to be the governing body when the Savior returns and ready to accept him as as you know the high priest the great mm -hmm. high priest spoken of by Paul in Hebrews he will be the of course the leader the king of kings the Lord of Lords but it'll be the church it'll be the governing body mm -hmm. you know if you listen to the general conference of just the last couple of years that it, it seems to me and I haven't gone back and I haven't counted and it may just be that I'm just more ready for the message or listening for the message 
but there are more references to preparing people to meet the Savior for mm -hmm. the second, uh -huh. specifically for the second coming of the Savior, mm -hmm. and uh, that's the the fact that we are being told to prepare for the second coming and be, being given a church structure to prepare us for the second coming w would imply to me that, as your dad said, we're a day closer. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. But a day with the Lord is a thousand years, so. Yeah, that's right. His timing is not our ways, right? His timing is not our timing. All right. Thank you, guys. Is there anything you guys want to add to it? I the good guys win. That's, the good that's, guys win. That's what I would just add. You know, that we get so wrapped up in the crazy stuff. Mm -hmm. The good guys win. Mm -hmm. And that's really the... It is so... Those last chapters of Revelation are so victorious. Mm -hmm. And the blessings that are awaiting for us at the end are... So marvelous. I don't want anybody to lose those. In the middle of, all the, middle the of all the beasts stuff. and yeah. craziness. Well, that brings up the other point. Uh, you read the book of Revelation, and even a cursory, even a cursory reading of it can be pretty scary. Yeah. You kind of go, Ugh, I don't know about this stuff. Uh -huh. And so the, the fundamental question that people always ask is, what do I need to do to prepare uh -huh. for the second coming? Well, the answer is relatively straightforward. You know, make sure your faith, your testimony is strong. Follow the brethren. Follow the brethren. And then the other thing I would say, and I've heard the brethren say this in meetings we've had with them, the, the best thing you can do to prepare for the second coming is to qualify for, obtain, and keep a current temple recommend. Mm -hmm. Why is that, people ask. Because when the Lord comes in that great and grand second coming, everything that's of a celestial order will be consumed. The temple recommend questions set the minimal terrestrial standard for living. Mm -hmm. So if you obtain and are worthy to hold the current temple recommend, you know, what do the seminary students call it? Fire insurance. Yeah. Because you'll not be burned <laughs> at his coming. Uh -huh. So my, my, when people ask me that, what should I do to prepare for the second coming? My answer is always the same. Follow the brethren. Get a Temple recommend to keep it and use it. Mm -hmm. And also I see a greater emphasis in the church, especially with our youth programs, of moving the kids and the youth to being more and more spiritually self-reliant mm -hmm. and receiving their own revelation and setting their own spiritual goals. And so I can see that too as a preparation. And it's well. not children and youth, it's adults as mm -hmm. well. But, you know, we are, we are now, you can't any longer push off gospel education to somebody at church or somebody and at that's seminary. what the whole come follow me exactly. curriculum mm -hmm. is designed to do is to help us become more spiritually self-reliant to not okay i read i read the lesson for today i have no idea what it means but the sunday school teacher will explain it all to me mm -hmm. no you're quite capable of understanding through you know the instruction given and through personal revelation you can learn yeah and i think it's so important that we all do that for ourselves well, thank you guys so much for being our Revelation Roundtable today. Thank you for asking Dad to be here so I could tag along. <laughs> you guys are awesome. Okay, and to kind of add my own little thought on a particular like scripture or symbol that we see a lot that's mentioned that is mentioned in the book of Revelation is in chapter 13 verse 18 it says here is wisdom let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast for it is the number of a man and his number is 600 3 score and 6 so my dad talked about it a little bit but 
I wanted to kind of elaborate on that because I think the number 666 has taken on kind of like a terrifying and evil meaning in our culture. And I think anytime where there's fear, if we can do anything to stop that fear and to understand things better so that we're not fearful of something and not fearful of a symbol, but we understand it, I think is always good. And so here's my thought on the number 666. And again, this comes from various conversations I've had with my parents and other people. So if we are looking at the numerology that the ancient Jews used, one of the most powerful numbers that they used was the number seven. Um, You know, God created the earth in seven days. And if you continue to look in the scriptures, there's all kinds of examples of the number seven pertaining to God. And the number seven, as it pertains to God, means a sense of completeness, a sense of wholeness, a sense of perfection, right? Um, You know, becoming perfect even as he is. So the number seven represents that perfection and that wholeness of God. So if seven is perfect, six then is falling short. It's incomplete, right? And so if you have three sixes, well, let's look at three different places that Satan will come up against Christ and God and he will fail. The first one is obviously in the pre-mortal world. You know, we had the council in heaven and we had the war in heaven where we could choose Satan's plan or we could choose Christ's plan and we chose Christ's plan. So obviously he failed there. So he gets a big six, which is basically like you know, the numerology equivalent of the letter F, like he gets an F on his report card. He gets an F there, right? So then there's the Garden of Eden and he thinks he's won. He thinks he's gotten an A on this project, but then it turns out that no, God has other plans and he's provided a savior. So actually this whole Garden of Eden thing in the fall turns out to be a good thing. So he gets an F on that too. He gets another six. And then finally, this whole mortal journey that we're going to go through The entire message of the book of Revelation is one of triumph and of victory. We know he's going to fail again. And so that's going to be the final F, another six. So whenever you see that number, the 666, don't think of it as something evil or to be feared or, you know, kind of get like that chill bumps on your arm kind of feeling. Think of it as a report card. This is Satan's report card that he's trotting out to say, you know, look, this this is his record of failing against Christ and against God. So... That's what I think of whenever I see that number. And it helps me not to be so afraid, I think, of it and just of the general things that are associated with the Antichrist and the beast and things like that. So um, that's just my thoughts. You know, John, how could he portray, you know, Satan with a symbol? And this would be a symbol that would be very accurate. You know, Satan failed every time he came up against Christ and God. So anyways, I hope you guys enjoyed those thoughts. I hope you enjoyed the thoughts with my parents and um, being at our Sunday dinner roundtable. So have a great week. Bye, y'all.